For too long, we thought we could bend the world to suit just us, the human race. No more. As we face the challenges of climate change, inequality and environmental degradation, we know that to simply sustain is not enough. We need to regenerate. A regenerative future is one where people and our planet flourish, hand in hand in the long term. At the RSA, we're building a programme that brings people and ideas together to show how this could look, act and feel. Join the regeneration. Visit the rsa.org forward slash regenerative dash futures. Hello. Very occasionally when reading a book, a line jumps off the page and slaps me round the face. Here's an example from the book I'm going to discuss today. There's a painful irony, the author writes, in the fact that many of those who toppled statues of former slave owners are themselves clothed in the produce of forced labourers in Xinjiang. We in the UK are heavily implicated in what is happening in China. Our government has allowed the Chinese to trash the agreement we signed about the independence of Hong Kong. We bank with the Chinese. We buy Chinese goods. China is now the most powerful totalitarian state the world has ever seen. Making this podcast it might have some consequences for me. Writing the book on which it is based will mean its author is even more subject to smears and threats. Yet while we expend seemingly endless energy on Western culture wars, the rise of China, something that will define the world of our children and grandchildren, seems just too difficult or perhaps too dangerous to discuss. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I feel honoured to be joined by Nathan Law, author with Evan Fowler of Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back. Hi, Nathan. How are you? Hi, Matthew. I'm doing okay. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Where are you, Nathan? You said you were in a hotel? Yes, I'm now in, in Venice. I've just participated in a program in the Global Campus for Human Rights. So I've been doing a lot of like learning on global efficacy and uh, UN mechanism and everything. I'm just trying to get more prepared for the international efficacy work that lies ahead. And where do you live, Nathan? Where's home for you? So I've left Hong Kong last June. So for now, I'm based in London. Right. Well, we're really glad to have you. I mean, I think I want to start there before we kind of get into the book, which just for people to understand that you are an exile from your country and you are now pretty much a full-time activist. That's your life now, isn't it, Nathan? Well, yes, nationally, activism has always been a big element, if not um, the most important thing. In my life for the past few years, I was a protest leader when I was in university. I participated in the large civil disobedience actions in 2014, which we called it Umbrella Movement. And afterwards, I've been involved in politics and I was jailed because of my participation of peaceful assemblies. And for now, I just am in exile because of my advocacy and for Hong Kong's democracy and also all these activism works that promote peaceful protest and civil disobedience. 
So just to be clear, as a peaceful protester, as a person whose views, your book is clear, are quite moderate, really, you can't go back to Hong Kong because you'd almost certainly be arrested. And I think we talk about words like exile or migrant or whatever, they trip off the tongue. But rarely do we really think about it. So you're separated from your family, you're separated from your friends, and you're forced not to live in a country that, as this book shows, you really love. Yes, definitely. I'm basically being forced away from the city that I deeply rooted in and that I love. I'm away from family. I, I, I issued a public statement saying that I'm severing my ties with my family because I don't want them to be endangered because of my connection. These things are these things mean so much to me, but seemingly for my activism, I just have to make a choice in between them. And I do believe that that makes, makes everything so difficult, but that's the way that I'm moving forward. I just need to be a voice for Hong Kong and continue to be active on the international stage to remind everyone that there is a battle in Hong Kong and there are people who are struggling on the ground. But yet you weren't always an activist and and the book describes a particular moment really of politicization where it was one of those kind of sliding doors moments i guess where it could have gone either way but at a particular moment in your life you thought no now is the time for me to stand up describe that moment nathan yeah i think one of the political enlightenment in my life was in 2010 when no got the nobel peace prize i was studying in a pro beijing school and I actually grew up in a very apolitical family. My parents are immigrants from mainland China, and my father swarmed to Hong Kong from mainland China in late 70s. So he was actually a political and economic refugee. And as I described, they are having some kind of refugee mentality, which we are in a blue-color family. I grew up in a rough neighborhood. My father was a construction worker. My mother was a street cleaner. They all just wanted to have a stable life. They all just want to provide. So they teach me from when I was very young that just don't stay away from politics. Stay away from like going against the Chinese Communist parties because they're just too powerful, even though they know that they are doing bad things. That's why they left China to Hong Kong, but they still don't want their family to be involved in these affairs. So for me, I the very first time that I recognized there are something wrong in the society and in, in China in particular was when uh, Liu Xiaobo got the Nobel Peace Prize and the principal of my school denounced him on the next day's morning assembly saying that he is betraying his country, he's not respecting his country, etc. And that really triggered my curiosity because I learned that Nobel Prize laureates are the people who are excellent in their field. So how come such a Chinese person would be described in that fashion and they're just um, um, flaming him in, in such a manner. It really triggered my curiosity and looked up to his work and that was like opening up a door for me to explore what, what are human rights, democracy and all these related concepts. So that was actually one of the very first moments that made me wanted to devote myself into the world of human rights. And one of the things that struck me about the story that unfolds in the, in the book, Nathan, is that life in Hong Kong, if you're not political, if you don't care about democracy, rule of law, freedom of the media, these kinds of the kind of all the elements that we associate with 
a healthy democracy. Life is fine. Life is okay. You know, the economy grows, business does its stuff. You can kind of get on with your life. And for most people, as the control from China has increased, the temptation just to keep your head down, to keep on living, to avoid getting into any kind of trouble must be very strong. But yet, on occasion after occasion, large numbers of people in Hong Kong, particularly young people, have taken an enormous risk, often with terrible consequences for themselves, as you have, and they've come out on the streets and they've said, no, this matters to us. Being in a democratic society, even if it's not a tra- even if it's not a traditional democracy, we'll accept that it may not be a traditional democracy, but nevertheless, the other elements of a kind of democratic culture matter to us so much that we will risk our livelihood. We will indeed risk our freedom. Well, definitely, yes. I think that's why I, I, I've been saying that the protest in Hong Kong is, is not only about economy, this, this place in the big background, but it's about the dignity of people and the deep betrayal that they felt when the Chinese Communist Party is not keeping their words, not keeping their promises. When we look back to 1997, when Hong Kong was handed back from the British government to the Chinese government, Beijing promised Hong Kong people that Hong Kong will not only thrive in economy, but also we will keep our autonomy, freedom, and democracy. But if you look back to the implementation of the one country, two system for the past 20-something years, that we realize it's just a big lie. And I think to a lot of Hong Kong people that they once trust those words, and then they realize that they've been fooled, they've been betrayed, and then... I think that really hurts them as they felt a deep betrayal because of it. That's also, I think, a deeply ingrained reason why there are so many Hong Kong people coming out, not just because they wanted to have a like wealthier society, but they want to get the dignity back. And I think that kind of not committing the promises that they gave from the Chinese government to Hong Kong people is actually a very strong incentive for people to come out. And come out they have time and again, and the response from the authorities has become more heavy-handed, more oppressive, almost on each occasion. But it is worth reminding ourselves, isn't it, Nathan? I mean, I remember the signing of that deal, the deal that was supposed to ensure that Hong Kong could maintain those elements of its democratic culture albeit recognizing it wouldn't be a full democracy until 2047. And really, the Chinese started to renege on that almost immediately. And it's interesting that, you know, Britain is often a country that can become quite kind of indignant and self-righteous if we think that other countries aren't playing fair by us. But we've just really shrugged our shoulders, haven't we, and accepted that, that the Chinese from the very beginning have treated that agreement with bad faith. Well, I think it's not only for the UK government. A lot of like gigantic countries like the US, Canada, and the others have also laid down their trust to the Sino Patricia Declaration, which is actually the treaty that governs Hong Kong's development after 1997 and promised Hong Kong people that Hong Kong will enjoy democracy. I think that's just been a complacency for the past 20 years in terms of looking at China, like the world wants them to grow, wants them to integrate into the global system, but really they they have not been 
developing mechanism to hold hold them accountable, and they are lacking the awareness that the growth of China could actually pose a threat to the global order, which brings in the benign influence of authoritarianism and really creating the backsliding of um, global democracy. And what's happening in Hong Kong is actually playing in this back backdrop. Hong Kong is definitely a place that Beijing can have full control and lots of influence in it. And the way that we lose our freedom in just such a short period of time, it's just appalling. So I think, yes, indeed, UK government showed a part of the responsibility of not really closely monitoring and developing mechanism to avoid these intrusion from happening. But I think playing in the larger picture is the world that felt democratic values and the people who are fighting for democracy. And I think this needs to be changed. Yeah, in an interesting way, what has happened in Hong Kong has kind of charted the way in which we have moved from that famous kind of Francis Fukuyama moment when it felt as though liberal democracy had triumphed to where we are now, where it feels as though our democracies are weak, divided, inward-looking, and many countries which despise democracy are confident and expansionary and bold. And, and that journey from the apparent hegemony of democracy to its great kind of global frailty right now, it kind of maps the journey in, in Hong Kong. So let's look at just briefly, Nathan, at some of the elements of that kind of process of decline. And I wanted to look at, at three really. First of all was democratic accountability. Now, as I said, you know, Hong Kong was never a democracy in the traditional sense. But the the commitment was to ensure that there would be a plurality of voices and there would be representation of different interests, even if the Chinese were to have a kind of guaranteed major stake in the way that things were actually run. But that's the first area that one has seen this erosion. And you yourself, of course, were elected and your capacity as an elected person to represent your views, represent people was severely curtailed, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, we grew up learning that there is a division of power in Hong Kong, that the legislature is, even though it is not democratically elected thoroughly, but there is a responsibility of it to monitor the government and also the judiciary. They should have full independence in holding the government accountable. That's what we learned when we were young. But when you look at how the Hong Kong government and the Chinese government describing the system in Hong Kong nowadays, they're saying that there is no division of power. All the other branches should serve the administrative sites and the judges in the court should swear their allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party and the legislature should never block anything from the government. And just by looking at the differences in the way that they portray Hong Kong's system, you could really recognize that there is a huge differences and there is a huge decline on democratic accountability in the way that we have our Hong Kong society nowadays. And just look at how they reform our electoral system. In before, where when I was elected in 2016, there were around half of the seats in the Legislative Council were through direct election. I was one of them. And the other half, most of them, were reserved to the pro-Beijing people. So whenever we had election, 
pro-democracy camp always got the popular majority in terms of votes. But when we are in the legislature, we are always minority because of how the legislature was designed. But for now, they're even decreasing the numbers of direct elected seats to around 20%. So this is extremely low, and the others are just appointed by the government. It literally makes the Hong Kong legislature into rubber stamp chamber as the one in Beijing. So I think by really observing these changes and the way that they portray Hong Kong, we could really see that they're not going to open up the whole government. Instead, they're just trying to deprive people from the rights to hold the government accountable and then to implement their authoritarian governance much more top-down and much more effectively from this angle. Yeah, and you write in the book about the erosion of the rule of law, the pressure on the judiciary to fall into line, the misuse of the law. I think you were prosecuted, weren't you, for a minor offence several years after it happened and you were tied up in kind of bureaucracy throughout that period. Another area, of course, is the media, where Hong Kong always had a very lively media willing to challenge those in authority. But again, the freedom of the media has been chipped away pretty comprehensively, hasn't it, Nathan? Yeah, definitely. In the book, I detailedly lay out the toolbox of an authoritarian regime could use to really destroy these major pillars of our civil society and our liberty. For example, in the courts, they could co-op judges, they could use the reinterpretation in our constitution, the basic law, to really effectively amend our local laws and to create legal loophole to prosecute activists and prosecute our democratic campaigners. I was also being prosecuted just because of participating in an unauthorized assembly and they suddenly raised the threshold of the sentencing into a way that to severely punish people who joined a rally and to exercise their rights to assembly and rights to protest. For the media freedom, they bought out all the newspaper and restructured their top tier of officials in order to redirect the journalistic direction into a much more in favor direction to Beijing. And also they are blocking all the mechanism that individual journalists could do to do investigative studies. And the prosecuting journalists, they are using force to disperse journalists on the protest sites, etc. There have been a lot of tactics that they use in a way to chip off our freedoms and to chip off the foundation of our civil society. And the way that they weaponize the law, the way that they punish the journalist. I think it is not only happening in Hong Kong. There is a global implication, not only in authoritarian countries, but also we may find it in some of the new democracies that the government is actually using same tactics to kind of like grab the power and to decrease the checks and balances in these domains. And I think this is definitely when we share Hong Kong's story, actually people from around the world could learn from it and to remind themselves and their society that when these things happen, they understand that is the toolbox of a growing authoritarian regime. And we just have to do something to stop it. Yeah, no, it's very interesting in the book, the kind of gloomy, bleak logic of it, which is that once you 
start to erode democracy, then it becomes impossible to have an independent judiciary because this will then seek to support those who are democratically elected. So, And then once you're dispensing with the rule of law, you don't want journalists reporting it. So these, it is exactly as you say in the book, these things follow quite naturally one upon the other, softening people up, getting people used to, pessimistically used to the way things happen. But in a sense, they have a logic. You can't, if you're going to deny democracy and you're going to deny the rule of law, then you know pretty soon you're going to find a free press intolerable too. But one of the things that I also kind of noticed in your account is that in a kind of Orwellian way, the, the Chinese authorities, you know, throw around words like democracy and accountability and freedom and openness, despite the fact that what has happened in Hong Kong has happened in plain sight. And of course, other problematic aspects of Chinese government at home and abroad, there is still apparently a kind of craving for legitimacy. Is that real? Is it just a game? Is it just a kind of Orwellian game to use words which no longer have any kind of meaning? Or is there a sense, do you think, Nathan, that the Chinese are think they're trying to win an argument here, that they can somehow convince people to have a view of democracy, which includes their very authoritarian model of control? Yeah. Well, I think all the speeches made by them describing democracy with Chinese characteristics rule of law with Chinese characteristics are all for internal consumption. They're not going to win any arguments on the international level. The way that they portray democracy as an election system that could control everything, the way that they portray rule of law as all the judicial system has to follow and listen to the orders of the Chinese Communist Party, this is no way closer to our understanding of these two terms in the international level. But the way that they could portray that perception and, and the definition of it and to feed to their people who don't have any external access to information where they could have more nuanced view on it or, or a view that is closer to the international standard, then maybe these terms could play in a magic that these people could believe China has fulfilled their promises of becoming democratic and a democratic country with rule of law. So I think the intention has never to win over an argument on the international level. Rather, they're just trying to build a parallel universe and to continue to, to, to hold a legitimate moral high ground in their domestic narrative in collaboration with the deprivation of access to information of its people because of the internet firewall and to try to gain legitimacy out of it. So the perception that we have of China has been going through a process of change and I guess deterioration now for several years. When I I worked for, for Tony Blair and and I think the the view of China in his government and then I think even more so under kind of David Cameron and George Osborne was a kind of mixture of kind of awe and complacency, awe on the side in the sense of the scale of growth in China, the scientific and technological advances of China, the, the, the genuine progress in lifting people out of absolute poverty. And then on the other hand, a kind of sense that as China liberalized its economy, then 
inevitably this would lead to a liberalization of its politics in a way that happened in the early stages in Eastern Europe, although, of course, that story then does not turn out terribly well for Russia at least. So were we always wrong, Nathan, about China? Were we wrong to view it through this kind of lens of admiration and complacency? Or is it that things have really changed there, that the strategy in China has changed? I think it's quite natural that for observers that in the first decade of the year 2000, that they perceived China as a country which is liberalizing and going to be a more open society in the future. There were signs of them going to that direction. But definitely after Xi Jinping took the power, the trajectory become extremely authoritarian. And by the time, I think the world also took a few years to recognize that and to start to strategize. In the UK, I think in the recent two years, there has been a massive change in terms of how they perceive China. At least for now, there are no parliamentarians in the parliament or in US Congress that they stand up and say that we support China for their business and we don't care about human rights. Basically, people like that, they are all gone. The so-called golden era is also gone. So we've witnessed that change quite drastically, even though, in my opinion, it, it comes a bit late. We should have really recognized that when Xi Jinping was in power and that he, he was doing a lot of bad things in Hong Kong and in China's civil society, publishing, legislating those foreign NGO laws, started to build up the Xinjiang concentration camp and all sorts of things. Or even we should have built a mechanism to hold China accountable in the very first place when we are talking about the 1997 Hanover, etc. But at least for now, we've seen that change. And I think it is certainly for us to really to develop mechanism to try to decrease our reliance on China, to try to find ways on the international level and on the multilateral level that we could hold them accountable and for the democratic countries that we need to really gather and like sit on the table and to rethink how we can stop that rise of authoritarianism by collective efforts and by global agenda. I think for this book, it is a portrait of my story and Hong Kong's story, but I am having an ambition that it can achieve a global implication and a larger appeal to the people that we should not take freedom and democracy for granted. And for the democratic countries, it's time to act. It's time to do something to stop the trend of the rise of authoritarianism. And to what extent, Nathan, do you think this is about President Xi Jinping in the sense that one of the characteristics of authoritarian regimes and I guess we've seen this, for example, in the history of Russia and, of course, in the, in the history of China on a number of occasions, a change at the top can then lead to pretty radical changes throughout society. Is your hope that when Xi Jinping's period in office comes to an end, that somebody with a more enlightened view could take over? Or are you do you think that Xi Jinping will ensure, amongst other things, not only that he stays there for as long as possible, but that he is succeeded by somebody in his own mould? Well, first of all, we have no idea when Xi Jinping would step down because he removed the term limit, which means that he could be president as long as he's alive. And second, I, I don't think we should blindly expect there is a reformer in the Chinese Communist Party and then he will fix everything because in the way that Chinese Communist Party aligned its philosophy, it's always 
quite coherent, even though there are lots of internal conflicts. And they always position the dominance of, in, in terms of power of the Chinese Communist Party as the very first priority of whatever they do. So I think it is impossible for us to just sit and wait for reform in Chinese Communist Party. But what we have to do is we, we need it to put more pressure. We need it to form a larger block of alliance to promote democratic values and to implement a mechanism to make sure that they are going to pay the price when they do human rights violation in order to facilitate changes and in order to empower people in China and in Hong Kong to say that they are going to resist when human rights violation occurred and they have the support of the international community. And I think that is the root of us precipitating change and also encouraging people who still have the sense of justice and freedom to try to resist no matter how narrow the room of political activism is. It's interesting you, you should say that. I mean, we're speaking, you and I, on the with COP26 just around the corner, and that's going to be a moment at which I guess most people will say, look, forget our other differences. Let us try to cooperate globally in relation to climate change. And maybe that's right. You know, climate change is an existential threat to us. But I, I also I remember speaking to Kevin Rudd in one of the earliest editions of this podcast, and and Kevin, former Australian Prime Minister, he talked about the importance of a of a coalition of countries really committed to pluralist democracy, and that that would be the organising principle for those countries, in, not necessarily in a kind of aggressive or militaristic or whatever kind of way, but just kind of to reinforce and support each other and to act as a kind of beacon for those values in a world which, as I said earlier, it feels as though they are more vulnerable than they've been for a long time. Well, in China's context, without independent journalism, how can we know that they are providing the correct figures and also doing whatever they have promised to do? Without the civil society, how can we make sure that China is collaborating with all those promises and committing themselves genuinely into the way that they wanted to achieve a cleaner, a cleaner world. I mean, there are lots of factors in a democracy and embedded in the democratic values that could really help the advancement of this efficacy. And I'm just not convinced by putting out beautiful words like collaboration and working with China that we could really achieve our results that we desire from the way that Hong Kong people deal with the Chinese Communist Party, we realize that collaborative would just make the Chinese Communist Party to see you as someone subordinate them and they will try everything, including voiding the international treaty, including betraying their promises and their people in order to achieve their goal. So I think definitely climate change Global warming is definitely one of the most serious crises that we have to tackle. But I think in the way that we deal with China, if we are lacking all those elements that we have in the civil society and the determination to make them to collaborate and to like fall in line, not only by beautiful words, but by concrete actions, 
then we will just end up having nothing. So I think there's more than one way to address the problem. And I think we just need to be very strong and determined. And if necessary, we need measures to hold them accountable when it comes to dealing with the Chinese Communist Party. Well, Nathan, it's been really powerful to talk to you. I can recommend the book that you've written with your co-author, Evan Fowler, Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back. It made a great impact on me and I encourage others to read it as well. Thank you, Nathan, both for your activism, for the sacrifices you've made and for the book you've written. Thank you so much, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. Thank you for listening. Now, I'm far too modest to discuss my own book on this podcast, but, well, I'm not too modest to tell you about it. So if you're interested in work, the history of work, the nature of work, the future of work, and what we need to do to create a genuinely good work society, then why don't you check out my new book? It's called, Do We Need to Work? Thank you.